Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Another week, and thank God, another Friday. We hope you are feeling hearty and hail and that you're in for a great weekend. We are doing something a little different this week, which is to feature two up and coming founders, both of whom are really interesting for very different reasons, but who have something in common, which is that both have seen very clearly a need for what they're building based on their recent past experience. We hope you find the founders and their ideas as interesting as we did. But first, a word from our sponsor. The transportation industry continues to skyrocket with potential as emerging startups alongside legacy automakers change the way we move from place to place. TechCrunch is bringing together the leaders evolving the transportation industry at TechCrunch Sessions Mobility on June 9th. You'll hear from the CEOs and founders leading the autonomous vehicle charge from companies like Aurora, Zooks, and Motional. We'll also dive deep into the artificial intelligence that's powering these innovations, discuss how the development of smart cities can change how we move, and analyze the role venture capital takes in the evolution of this industry. Join us and save an extra 10% with promo code STRICTLYVC at TechCrunch.com forward slash mobility. And now back to the program. Our first interview this week is with Santa Barbara County's former health director, Charity Dean, who's been in the national spotlight in recent days because she was among a group of doctors, scientists, and tech entrepreneurs who sounded the pandemic alarm early last year and who are featured in a brand new book by Michael Lewis about the U.S. response called The Premonition. Dean is an interesting figure. Surgery is her first love, but she also studied tropical diseases and is a disease control expert who not just applied what she learned about outbreaks and disease control on the front lines, but also came to appreciate an opportunity that only someone in her position could see. Indeed, after the pandemic laid bare just how few tools were available to help the U.S. government and private enterprises track how the virus was moving and mutating, she helped develop a model that has now been turned into software that's being sold to all kinds of outfits, from insurance companies to enterprises that need to understand which of their warehouses can remain open around the world, for example. We talked with Dean about that outfit called Public Health Company and learned it's already raised seed funding from Venrock and has ties to lots of esteemed doctors and technologists, including Todd Park, the former U.S. chief technology officer, and now one of her board members. She told us what inspired her to do what she does, why multiple trips to Africa during her career to provide medical care helped shape what she's most passionate about, and how that passion could ultimately turn into a big and meaningful business. Here's part of that conversation now. So, Charity, I know that you're a doctor of medicine. You also have a master's degree in tropical medicine. Why was this an area of interest for you? Well, I've had a lifelong obsession with pandemics and outbreaks. I studied microbiology in college, and when I went to medical school, I decided to also do a master's of public health and tropical medicine, and then becoming a local health officer and then becoming a state health officer, managing all sorts of outbreaks and disease control on the front lines 
I was always frustrated by the lack of technology tools. And really by June of 2020, it was so clear to me that disease control and the risk management of it needed the kind of capability that would have to come from a technology sector. Were your parents doctors? What interested you in microbiology? You know, um, neither of my parents had college degrees. I grew up in very modest setting in rural Oregon. We were poor. And by the grace of a full ride scholarship to college, I got to be pre-med. When I was a little girl, some missionaries came to our church and talked about disease outbreaks in Africa. I was seven years old and driving home that evening with my parents, I said, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to study disease. And it was outrageous because we were poor. My parents didn't have college degrees. We were in rural Oregon and I didn't know a single person with a college degree, but I was too young to know that there would be hurdles and blockers. And my heart was set on that and it never deviated from it. That's phenomenal. You get these two degrees, you fulfill this dream of yours to become a doctor. And then in pretty short order, you end up at the Santa Barbara County Public Health Department. How did that come about? Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, it's funny when I was finishing up my residency, which I started doing general surgery, surgery is my first love. And then I pivoted into internal medicine. I had a number of different doctors, private practices come to me and recruit me because of the shortage of women physicians here. And what was funny is at that time, the medical director from the county public health department came and found me and he said, Hey, I hear you have a master's in tropical medicine. And he said, would you consider coming to work as the deputy health officer and communicable disease controller and tuberculosis controller and HIV clinic and homeless (laughs) clinic? And I could not understand why that sparkled and why I wasn't interested in the salary of private practice. I was pulled to work at the county and I didn't understand it at the time. I do now. But for me, it was a fairly easy choice. I decided to follow my heart. And you were interested because you felt like there was so little attention being paid to these potentially catastrophic things that are looming all the time. Well, what caught my attention is when he said communicable disease controller Mm -hmm. and tuberculosis controller. And when I had lived in Africa, I had learned a lot about HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, vaccine preventable diseases, things we don't see in the United States. When he said communicable disease controller and I started reading the law and the job of the local health officer... I came alive. It just sparkled with possibility. And it was such a match for my passion that even though the salary was literally a third of what you would make in private practice, the mission was so lockstep with who I was. And the county clinic patients are there because it's the safety net. They don't have health insurance. Many are undocumented. Many have nowhere else to go for health care. And the county clinic truly serves the communities that I cared about. And that's where I wanted to be. Do you think people would be surprised by how many people are afflicted by tuberculosis even here in the U.S. in 2021? I think they would be shocked. My deep area of expertise is multi-drug resistant tuberculosis simply because I saw so much of it. And most people don't realize that California is number one for tuberculosis cases in the United States. In California, we have between two and three million people who are infected with latent tuberculosis, meaning they don't have active disease, but they are infected with the bacterium that's gone dormant in their body. 10% of the time, those infections cause active disease. 
So this is a massively important issue that really flies under the radar for the majority of people. That is really mind-blowing. I'm sorry to ask a stupid question, but how is it communicated to other people? Again, is it particles in the air? Sure. So it's airborne. Tuberculosis is a bacterium. It's called mycobacterium tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite pathogen because once you get infected through breathing in air, where the bacterium can travel from one person's cough to another person's lungs, once you get infected, it can do anything in your body. It can travel all through your body, through the bloodstream. It might only infect your brain. It might infect your kidneys and your lung. Tuberculosis can do anything, and it's incredibly difficult to treat. We have to treat it for at least six months, oftentimes nine months. And in the case of drug resistance, I would treat cases for two years or longer with a cocktail of anywhere between four and eight different drugs. And what are the symptoms? The symptoms of tuberculosis can start off very mild, weight loss, night sweats, fever, a mild cough, but that's in adults. What's challenging is the symptoms in children can present differently. Failure to thrive, not gaining weight, lack of appetite, fussy. And so we have to become disease detectives and look Mm -hmm. for every clue like chest x-rays or sputum. One of those clues is taking the sputum sample And when it's positive, analyzing the genome of the bacteria, because each bacteria has a fingerprint, their genetic fingerprint. And I learned how to track genetic mutations in the bacteria to actually show who infected whom and how fast it was spreading. And that's what we call genomic epidemiology. It's interesting that there is this range of symptoms depending on age. And obviously, I think people have been taken aback by the range of symptoms related to COVID-19. Tell me a little bit about how your learnings in the field of tuberculosis made you a little bit more mindful and aware of what we were about to encounter here in the U.S. in terms of the coronavirus. Yeah, spot on. I love that you asked that because that actually was probably the single biggest contributor to my thinking. When we have a novel pathogen, as a doctor or as a communicable disease controller, our mind thinks in terms of buckets of pathogens. Some are airborne, some are spread on surfaces, some are spread through fecal material or through water. And so in January, as I was watching the news reports emerge out of China and watching the way that China was reacting to whatever this new pathogen was, it became clear to me that this was potentially a perfect pathogen. And what does that mean? That would mean it had some of the attributes of things like tuberculosis or measles or influenza, that it had the ability to spread from person to person, likely through the air, that it made people sick enough that China was standing up hospitals in two weeks, but that it moved fast enough through the population to grow exponentially. And so because I was such an obsessive passionate person about tuberculosis and tracking genetic mutations, by the time we got to March and April and COVID, I believed that the way to contain this and the way to protect populations had to be through genomic epidemiology, which means once the virus had blown through containment, once it was just a matter of managing the virus, we had to ramp up genetic sequencing and use the same tools and the same approach that I had used on the ground in the field for tuberculosis, where we needed to know who infected whom, how fast is it moving? Is it mutating to escape the vaccine? Are we going to have a second pandemic with a new mutated version? All of those lessons are things I learned from tuberculosis. 
And do you feel that we ever did get or have gotten a handle on that genetic sequencing? I don't know how effectively we've been able to trace how it's moved through society. Great question. So this is what I and others were sounding the alarm about back in April. I was one of the people that founded and led the California Testing Task Force. And through leading the task force, I was connected with Joe DeRisi at Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. And it was an instant mind meld because Joe too was very passionate about using genomics. And at that time, the United States was sequencing such a tiny fraction of COVID cases that we were essentially operating in the dark. There was no way the United States was going to detect a new variant, but we should have been. We are the home of many microbiology inventions. And here we were with Silicon Valley and all this technology at our fingertips. And yet public health did not have those tools. And so when I launched the public health company in August, I made the decision in October, November, that the most important early product that would be needed was genomic epidemiology and genomic variant analysis and modeling that in real time and forecasting how these mutations in COVID were moving, applying the exact way that we would do it for tuberculosis to COVID where instead of doing a manual analysis of PDF reports or a lot of data coming in to synthesize that in an automated fashion and turn it into intelligence so that we would have the ability to do that in software to give the speed of technology to the decision makers that had to act in real time. Is this a for-profit company? Yes, this is a private company. To back up a bit, Last year, when you got involved in the state of California's response, I understand that it was partly you or largely you who convinced Governor Gavin Newsom to close things down when he did. I would say everything I've done is as part of a team. What happened was in March, some amazing heroes parachuted in to help the state of California. And that mm-hmm. includes Todd Park, DJ Patil, Jenna Hussein, Bob Kocher, who came from the private sector to help the state of California develop a modeling effort that would actually show through computer-generated models what direction the pandemic was headed. And I was lucky enough to be partnered up with them through my role at the state. You know, it's funny how lifelong obsessions become useful. I had been obsessed with 1918 and outbreaks and pandemics my whole life. And so when I joined forces with that amazing team of volunteers from the private sector, it was the convergence of boots on the ground, epidemiology, microbiology, history, what are the lessons learned from 1918, and the building of a computer-generated model. The state was working with Hopkins, who is very good at computer-generated models, but the role that I played on that team was being that person that could provide input into what are the lessons learned from 18? What cities did it right? What didn't? What was the R effective at that time? And how do we build models that show not just a worst case scenario of what's about to happen, but show the governor what restrictions or interventions would do to change the trajectory because ultimately the governor had to make a decision and we needed to give him the model very similar to 1918 that showed him, here's what happens if you do, if you don't, here's how this will impact lives and livelihoods. And what's so remarkable to me about that effort, number one, is that all of those amazing humans came from the private sector 
to volunteer their time for 18 hour days, months on end. But number two, we have so much to learn from 1918 and 1918 had not been part of the conversation at the national level or state level in public health. And yet we were in 1918, we had no treatments, we had no vaccine. All we had was the ability to use non-pharmaceutical interventions or restrictions to make sure that human beings separated from each other. That was our most powerful tool. And so we had to incorporate that kind of thinking into the model. How does that model differ from what you're building now at your new startup? In March, if you wanted to look up a model online for how COVID would move through a population, there were very few available. Through all of the citizen scientists, all these data scientists across the country who put in effort creating models, by April or May, there were a lot of different places you could go to look at a model. What we are doing, what's really important to us in our platform is incorporating the genomic variant analysis or the fingerprint of the COVID virus as it mutates and as it moves through a population with epidemiology investigations and traditional data you might have from a local public health officer into a platform to make those tools readily available, easy to use, to inform decision makers to know what to do next so Mm -hmm. that you don't have to have a mathematician and a data scientist and Mm -hmm. an infectious disease doctor standing next to you to make a decision. We make those tools automated and readily available. That's been our goal. And are you selling to the U.S. government or governments around the world? I think what's really important and super unique and kind of blows apart our prior way of thinking is that an incredible need for this is in the private sector. What we saw in January is that because risk management of disease control had really largely been done at the local public health department, the private sector and businesses didn't have access to that kind of thinking and those kinds of tools. And so by February and March and April, when businesses were having to close down, they didn't have the tools at their fingertips to know, how do I protect my employees? How do I protect my clients? And so the tools that we're developing, are they useful for government? Absolutely. We are engaged in a number of different partnerships where this is of incredible service to governments, but they are as useful, if not even more useful to the private sector because they haven't had these tools and don't have a disease control capability at their fingertips. And many of them, especially large enterprises, have had to essentially stand up their own internal public health department and figure it out on the fly. The feedback that we're seeing from private sector businesses has been incredible when they realize that that kind of thinking can be at their fingertips to manage their risk and to help them understand what to do next. And that the public health company as a private company of former public servants and data scientists and infectious disease doctors can support those efforts to help them operate their company safely. So it's really a yes and. It's both for government and for private businesses. That's really interesting. So you're talking about hedge funds, insurance companies. What are some of the customers of yours that might surprise listeners and readers? Well, I can't share names of specific client engagements, but I will share with you some buckets. One bucket that might not occur to people is in the risk management space of a large enterprise that has global operations like a warehouse or a factory in different places. Mm -hmm. Let's say they have one or two in India and one or two in Cambodia and some in Western Africa and maybe a few in the United States. The risk management of COVID-19 is going to look very different in each one of those locations. 
It's going to be based on how the virus is mutating in that location, the demographics of their employees, the type of activities they're doing, the ventilation system in their facility. And so trying to grapple with all of those different factors to answer the question, how do I protect my employees and my clients? How do I keep my business open? That is something that we can do for them, that through a combination of our tech-enabled service, the expertise we have, the modeling, the genetic analysis, we can be of great service to sectors like that. And when you think about it in terms of not just protecting employees and clients, but liability of risk management, Mm -hmm. I don't know that risk management in terms of disease control has been a big part of private sector conversations. That's why we think of it similar to cybersecurity, that after a number of high-profile cybersecurity attacks, it became clear to every insurance agency or private sector business that risk management for them had to include cybersecurity. They had to stand up that capability. And we very much believe that disease control and the risk management for continuity of operations is going to be incredibly important moving forward. They see it now and they understand it's an existential threat to their business. And that's where we come in and we can help. our interview with Javier Avalos, who spent his early career at Merrill Lynch, Cowan & Company, and Deutsche Bank before landing at Forge, a San Francisco company that invites people who own or want to own shares in pre-IPO companies to buy and sell them. It was while watching Forge's business explode along with that of the broader private market that Avalos, along with his colleague and now co-founder, Justin Moore, spied an untapped, or underserved at least, opportunity. Their big idea? To enable institutional investors like hedge funds, family offices, endowments, pensions, and others to use options and derivatives, not just on the public side of their trading strategy, but to bet on rising and falling valuations in the private market as well, even without any shares. Their company, Caplight, isn't the first or only company trying to pull this off. Apiera Capital, a New York firm, is similarly aiming to bring a hedge fund form of long-short investing to venture-backed startups. And if there aren't others out there, you can bet there will be soon. And there are other challenges. Caplight, which just raised $1.7 million in pre-seed funding, has a relationship with broker-dealer North Capital that enables the startup to facilitate and clear transactions. But its product is still a work in progress. More because a big part of the revenue that it's generating will be transaction-based, the firm will always have regulatory hurdles to clear. Still, Avalos thinks he's onto something big because of the customers that he says are already lining up for the service. Indeed, he says Caplight, founded in January of this year, already has $400 million worth of indications of interest coming from around 30 or so institutional investor clients. We talked with him early this week. I see that you worked in investment banking for quite some time and then most recently worked for Kelly Rodriguez over at Forge. Can you talk a little bit about the opportunity that you spied there? Yeah, absolutely. I was part of the early team at Forge, specifically was mandated to build out the marketplace business and help oversee the development of a marketplace product. And so the opportunity that I saw was really one focused on serving the institutional segment of this market, something that Forge and others in the space, I'd be remiss to not mention Carta in this, something I think these platforms have done really well is build tech solutions for startup employees, for startup founders, for the companies themselves as well. And 
I think that that is great, but I think that what has not yet been proven is a model that specifically focuses on institutions. And that's the opportunity that I see here. And even double clicking within that, what we're really focused on are larger institutions who need true liquidity, meaning higher frequency of trading, whether that's buying and selling option contracts or entering swap type agreements, something that allows them to quickly move in and out of positions as well as hedge themselves. And so when you peel back the onion, that's really what we're focused on at CapLight is building an institutional first solution for this market. That's really interesting. And I want to understand your product offering much better, but you've raised $1.7 million in seed funding. Tell me whether you have raised or will raise money separately to support some of the products that you plan to offer. Yeah, we did just close a pre-seed round actually where FinVC led and it was $1.7 million. So um, excited about the, the pre-seed round. It does pave the path to hiring some of the early talent that we need to build out the initial product. And we have a few milestones that we're keeping an eye on before we come back to the market and do a seed round, which we hope takes place within the next 12 months, certainly, and hopefully a lot sooner than that. Is there capital set aside? I'm sure you've heard of another outfit in New York, a, a para capital that's aiming to bring a hedge fund form of long short investing to venture back startups, which I think is maybe what we're talking about here. But I know it was hoping planning to raise around $150 million in capital, much of it would be used to invest in traditional venture like deals, but the rest of it was going to be set aside to create one off bets with other parties on the fate of individual startups, essentially shorting them. So I wondered, are you also also raising capital on the side to do something similar? We know the team at Apera and, and Natalie quite well and really love what they're trying to do. So the answer to your question is no. Right now, the roadmap doesn't call for having a discretionary fund that is internal to CapLight. The way to think about CapLight is really the infrastructure that enables a strategy like Apera's or any other fund that is looking to take directional positions in private companies. CapLight is meant to be the plumbing that connects that fund to a market, but not just the marketplace, all of the infrastructure that comes with that. So holding assets in prime brokerage, for instance, which all hedge funds do, being able to quickly settle transactions through clearinghouses, being able to provide in data to inform a mark-to-market to value those contracts. When you start to think about institutional size transactions, not just the size, but also the speed at which these transactions need to settle, there's actually a number of different partnerships that need to be hooked into, and CapLight aims to be the technology that connects all of those pieces. I'm sorry I'm being dense, but I'm still not crystal clear on what you're offering here. Could you just spell it out in the most basic <laughs> terms possible? Yeah, absolutely. CapLight is a tech platform that allows institutional investors to de-risk their private company exposure. We allow institutional investors to hedge their private company stock, to generate income on their private company stock by selling out-of-the-money option contracts, for instance. We also allow institutional investors to take short or long positions. What makes CapLight different is we're doing all of our transactions synthetically. So the underlying shares don't actually have to move. We're also working through established 
transaction frameworks, such as the ISDA framework, that many of these hedge funds use to trade over the counter with investment banks or uh, other hedge funds. We're using this framework to take what is already happening in over-the-counter derivative trades and applying it to the pre-IPO asset class. Mm -hmm. This allows investors to come to the market who haven't had a chance to do so historically. So you're generating contracts between two parties, like you said, to short a stock potentially or around events, IPOs, mergers, acquisitions, and then you're taking a fee off of each of those transactions? That's right. So ours is a commission-based model. First and foremost, what's important to us is volume. So we look to build a marketplace and we think of ourselves as a market access or a trade web, which are public companies who have built out online trading platforms for institutions to do over-the-counter or institutional-sized block trades on fixed-income assets or other historically e-liquid marketplaces. That's how we think about ourselves, but instead of fixed-income, we're focused on pre-IPO stock. Is the pre-IPO stock used as collateral or encumbered in any way? And if so, do you need the permission of the startup in order to do that? The short answer is yes, the pre-IPO stock can be used as collateral. It doesn't always need to be though. The great thing about building a synthetic platform is you can inject liquidity into the market by working with sellers who don't actually own the stock. So if I'm a hedge fund and I don't own shares of a pre-IPO company, but I still want to express a short interest, a negative view on that company, you can use CapLite to do so. You just need to hold other tradable securities as collateral. So to circle back to your question, Alex, we can use the stock as collateral if the client owns the stock and that stock is permissioned to be used as such collateral, but we don't need to. That's part of the beauty of what makes this a marketplace that can have very rapid settlement and execution. Let's say I'm a hedge fund and I want to go short on a private company. Do I need somebody on the other side who owns that private company stock to be a part of your platform? Or can I simply find another person who's willing to take that trade through your service? Yeah, it's really more of the latter. You don't actually have to include any physical shareholder of the stock. What you need is two parties, one who's interested in going short on the name and another who's interested in going long on the name. Beyond that, you need a model that helps these parties arrive at not just a agreed upon valuation of the company today, but also where they're comfortable striking a contract at some point in the future. And then a methodology for valuation at any point in time in between those two points. So what we're talking about here is a methodology to create a mark to market on what the value of that contract is at any given time between the time you enter the contract and the time you ultimately go to settle the contract. Those are really the three main ingredients that are needed here. And so important to highlight that none of those ingredients is actually the underlying shares themselves. Simply what's transacting is a contract that is valued based on the economic value of those shares. And is there a certain amount of consulting that goes into developing those metrics or is this completely automated through your system? It will be completely automated through our system. We're in the process of building that out now. There's quite a bit of work, as you can imagine, that goes into that. And part of the mandate that we have post-raising this pre-seed is going out and finding the best talent to come in and help us with this. 
Can you give me an example of what one of those metrics might be? For example, raising a Series D round or publicly announcing a certain amount of revenues. Are there metrics that you could use as examples? Yeah, sure. So if a company does a round of primary fundraising, that would be a very large input into what the current value of the company is as far as a mark-to-market model is concerned, right? So if a company raises a Series D, in, in your example, that would probably be the major factor in determining what the value of that company is today. If there's also a very robust secondary trading market for that company's stock, that would also be a factor though. What's maybe a less obvious thing that you'd be tracking? I'm assuming you're also going to be watching who's coming and going from these companies. Maybe a less obvious one is that when public mutual funds own private tech company stock, they have to report out on at least a quarterly basis where they're marking those positions. And that's all public information. So how do you attract the the buyers and sellers to this platform? Absolutely. So first and foremost, the groups who have seen the most value in this type of platform immediately have been hedge funds, which is probably not a surprise. To give you a a really concrete example, we've seen funds have initial interest in selling out-of-the-money call options. You have a hedge fund who has owned a stock for, call it five plus years, who has had quite a large return on the shares, isn't outright bearish on the company, but is interested in selling a contract that lets them continue to participate on the upside while generating income today for selling that contract. That creates an opportunity for someone to buy that call option and basically create an exposure to that private company. So- Sure, we're mostly working with hedge funds right now, but I would love to see CapLite sit on the desks of venture capitalists, as well as very large family offices, private banks, endowments, pensions, even insurance companies. There's a big use case for all of those players to be on the CapLite marketplace. Javier, why does your company make sense now? Why hasn't this been done before? Is there a technology that didn't exist before? Is it tied to smart contracts? Smart contracts are definitely an enabler, but I wouldn't say that what has unlocked this right now in this moment is technology-based. There's over $20 billion of transaction volume, meaning pre-IPO shares that are trading hands each year. And for that size marketplace to exist without the ability to have directional bets or easy hedging just didn't make sense to us. And so we think that really this is a function of where we are in the market that CapLite should exist and serve the institutional segment of the marketplace. Hi guys, this is Strictly VC's newest and best kid intern, telling you to stay tuned for next week and have a great weekend. Goodbye!